community, our one anotherness together, our being a church, not just attending a church, not coming and just filling a seat, but our uh, connectivity toward one another isn't optional according to Scripture. And we talked about how that a lot of people run from community, they try to pull back from community because community is inherently messy, all right? So own that for a second. Just realize that when you get close to people and you get into community, there's going to be people who say things and do things that you don't like, the way they treat you, the way that they say things to you, that you don't get your way all the time. And oftentimes we tend to point the fingers at everybody else other than our part in the problem as well. And that's human nature. But we have to understand that community is essential. It's not optional, but it's going to be messy. And so maybe your past church experience has led you to the place where you're here today. You attend a church, but you're really not going to get in deep and connected to people because you've been hurt in the past. It's very normal, but it's not scriptural to avoid community because of that reason. And so we looked at that last week. And then today we're going to look at the fact that it's a community project as we grow to be more and more like Jesus Christ. Our sanctification, the word, the scriptural word is sanctification, becoming more and more like Christ in our life. And so we're going to be in the book of Hebrews today. And Hebrews is a book that I have not preached through yet, looking forward to at some point along the way. But it's a great book. It's a very deep book, a very rich book. And so we're going to just touch on Hebrews today and look at the theme as we talk about regrouping and coming back together as a community today. So let's pray and we're going to, let's read the scripture first and then we'll pray. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13, just two verses we'll start out with. The author of Hebrews, maybe Paul, maybe not, he writes, take care brothers, lest there be any of you an evil unbelieving heart, be in any of you, I'm sorry, an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let's pray and we'll look at this passage. Father God, we thank you for your word that just roots us into truth. It just anchors us into the truth that we need to live this life the way that you called us to live. Because we know that Left to ourselves, we're just adrift into so many things that just pull at our time, pull at our energies, the things that we daydream about and fantasize about that aren't connected in any way, shape, or form to your kingdom. And God, we come to you as your people today, and we're crying out for just Holy Spirit conviction in our life to help us to see where we need to be anchored more deeply into your truth, into your word, into the person of Jesus Christ. And God, I pray for those here today who are discouraged, those who are feeling defeated, those who are just feeling depressed. God, I pray that today's the word will encourage them to help them to see their purpose in this life and to see that everything that happens in their life is for a purpose and a reason. And God, that you're using these things for your glory and even for our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As you know, the last couple weeks, I was up in West Virginia, and I was uh, spent a lot of time in the home that my brothers and I grew up in, moved there when I was five, almost six years old, so pretty much the only home that I ever knew, and as we were spending time in that home, you know, just a lot of time to look around and kind of re reminisce and think about memories and those things, and it, it's like the door frame, all right? I mean, the, you walk through a door frame as an adult, 
and you just like you can easily reach up. Some of you guys can hit that the door frame with your head. All right, I, it takes a little stretching for me to reach it, but I, I can just reach it. But I remember clearly growing up trying to meet that challenge of touching that door frame, and that was like kind of my first goal to see that I'm getting bigger and growing up was to run and jump and see if I could get the door frame. And we accomplished the door frame. It, it wasn't hard. It's not that tall. And then there were just other things in the house that I remember clearly as I tried to achieve different, um, different challenges throughout the house to see that I was growing up. There was the uh, rafters out in the carport that kind of hung down. They were taller than a door frame. And not only jumping on those, but to kind of get and hang on those was, it was really a challenge. And when I accomplished that, it was a huge thing. And then the ceiling in the house, that I could touch the ceiling. And it wasn't one of these you know, super high ceilings, but nevertheless, it was a challenge. And so there were all these benchmarks as I looked through the house. And even in the backyard, there was the backyard. It's kind of a shotgun backyard. But we played lots of wiffle ball back there. And just being old enough and big enough to hit that wiffle ball over the home run, which was the big bush at the end of the yard, was a huge accomplishment. And so there was all these signs that pointed to maturation, to growing up, to literally getting bigger. And as we think about sanctification, growing in Christ, I want you to think about your life and think about are there milestones, are there things in your life that you can point to, that you can look at, that you can think about and say, I've grown to be more like Jesus in these areas, and here's kind of evidence of that. And so every Christian knows that it's difficult to measure our growth in our Christ-likeness. It's hard sometimes to do that. But it's, it's possible, and I think that the way that Scripture points us to that is not just growing more intellectually, becoming more knowledgeable of Scripture, although knowledge is critical and you have to have knowledge, but the true measure of spiritual growth is our growing in holiness, becoming more like Christ, growing in our holiness. And so think about your life. Think about, put the spotlight on you for a second. Do you see growth? As you look back over your life, do you see growth in your holiness? Do you see things in your life that used to have your number or attitudes that used to have that now you can touch that door frame or you're getting close to that ceiling? Think about, you know, parents. Maybe a tangible one is your default is screaming and yelling at your children when they don't do right. And you've seen over time, you've looked back and you have those rare moments, right, where you still fall into that habit and you're kind of walking in the flesh and you just explode. It's going to happen. But you look back and you see a pattern where you're responding with more biblical wisdom. And instead of being reactionary to a situation, now you find yourself actually trying to be like Christ and praying in a situation. Or think about in your, in your relationship with your spouse. That you used to, everything turned into an argument. You tried to deal with anything, everything, and all of a sudden you were going at each other. It was calling names. It was belittling one another. It was one of you slams the door and leaves. But those days are less and less likely now that you're growing in Christ, you're growing in holiness, and you're looking back and you're seeing a pattern of your life where you're becoming more like Christ in those areas. Think about road rage, right? I mean, maybe you used to be the king of road rage, right? Screaming and yelling and, and, and doing stupid stuff on the road and about getting yourself killed by putting yourself in bad situations, but you've seen growth in that area. So can you look and see areas of your life where you can forming more and more to the image of Jesus. And it's interesting as we look at this passage of Scripture today, 
One of the things that is critical to this process, critical to becoming more and more like Christ in our marriage, in our personal life, in our thought life, in our communal life, all the, all the thing that's super important that Scripture points at in this passage is our dependence and connectivity toward, toward one another. And my friend Jeff Oldham in Dallas, when we really got really serious about fighting sin, one thing that he would always say to me, and it's so true, he said, sin loses its power when you drag it out into the light. You bring sin out into the light, expose it to the light, the devil doesn't like that, and he takes off running. Yet so many times as Christians, even those who have been Christians for many, many years, we're scared to death to bring sin out into the light, and we keep it in the darkness, we struggle with it by ourselves, and we're unwilling to take the risk. But Scripture doesn't give us the option. It says if we're going to grow to be like Christ, if we're going to grow in holiness, we do that in part by putting sin to death, and we do that by exposing it to the light of Scripture and to the light of community. And so as we talk about sanctification today, he's writing these Christians in the book of Hebrews who are struggling big time with their walk with, with Jesus Christ. Let's talk about for a second the, the background of Hebrews before we jump into these books. One thing we like to do before we talk about a passage is understand the context of who is being written to, why it was being written. And so the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians predominantly, and there were many who were struggling under the weight of persecution, and they were considering abandoning the Jesus community, abandoning those who claim the name of Christ, and running back to Judaism, because Judaism in the Roman Empire was an acceptable religion. They could practice, for the most part, practice Judaism, but Christianity was an outlawed religion, and so they were being persecuted for their faith. And so Hebrews is written primarily for three purposes. The first, the author is showing that Jesus is superior to all the previous ways God has revealed himself to Israel. Jesus is superior. Right in, in verse 1 and 2 of Hebrews 1, it says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And so he points, he says, God's revealed himself in the past, Jewish people, in all these ways through the prophets. But today, now, God is doing something. He's revealing himself in Jesus Christ. And so he's pointing out that God's revelation in Jesus is superior to everything else that they've received up to this point. The second thing that he does in this, past, in this book is it's written to show that Jesus is worthy of their trust and their devotion. Jesus isn't just some good guy or some prophet. Jesus is superior to everything that's been written thus far in the prophets, and Jesus is God. Look at verse 3. It says, he's the radiance of the glory of God. And get this, he's the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification for sin. After he died on the cross, he rose again, and he says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he's elevating Jesus to this community. He's like, how can you think about leaving Jesus? You can't leave Jesus. Jesus is the revelation of God, and not just the revelation of God. He is God. He's a picture of God, and not just a picture. He's the exact image picture of God. When you see Jesus, 
you see God. And so he's saying, don't abandon Jesus because Jesus is God. And then the third purpose for writing this book is to challenge these readers to remain faithful even during the persecution that's going on. There's many verses I could point to, point you to verse 12 of our text in chapter 3. It says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And so these are the purposes of the book of Hebrews. Now, one thing I think is, is important to understand in, in the book of Hebrews, and we're not going to dig deep in this today, but I think this is important to know. In chapters 3 to 4, the author talks a lot about rest. And when he's talking about rest, he's pointing to the Old Testament, and he's pointing to how the Hebrews saw that they could enter, God offered them the promised land, to enter the promised land. And you remember because their lack of faith, their lack of trust in God, what did they do? They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because they were not certain that God would really come through the way that God come, said he would come through. And the land, the promised land, was indicative of God's promise, not just to Abraham, what he was doing through Abraham and making him a nation, but it also pointed to a bigger significance, which was God's plan to restore this broken creation that we just sang about and to bring in his kingdom and restore the corruption and restore the, the, the earth after the corruption from the fall. And so entering the promised land or entering, as he talks about in Hebrews, the rest meant enjoying and entering God's plan of salvation. And the old covenant people, by and large, did not respond to the grace of God through faith. And while they eventually, we know, entered in the promised land, they never truly experienced the spiritual rest that the territory represented because of their lack of faith in God their lack of faith in his promises. So the author of Hebrews not only reminds his readers that those under the old covenant failed to enter God's rest, but he also warns them and draws this equal that you're going to fail to miss God's rest because of your lack of faith in Jesus Christ. In verse 1 and 2 of chapter 4, it talks about this. Look, look what he says. It'll be on the screen. Chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. If you have a Bible, flip there. He says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, you still have this opportunity, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as it came to them in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant came to us, but the message they heard did not benefit them. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So bottom line, he says, they did not believe God. They did, were not united in faith. They did not believe the promises of God were superior to their own fears, their own anxieties, their own worries. And so clearly shows us in this passage of Scripture, and as we launch into our text, we need to clearly remember that salvation isn't simply about hearing and giving intellectual assent to the gospel. Not any more than the Old Testament people heard God say, here's the promised land, here's what I'm doing. Just because they believed it to be true that God had offered them this, if they did not act upon that, it showed that their faith wasn't real. And many of them died because of their lack of faith in God's promises. And so the only appropriate response to the gospel is faith. It's trust. It's belief. It's, a, it's 
trusting our life to Jesus Christ. It's believing something to the point where I understand it's what Jesus says it is, and I put my hope into that. And as Martin Luther said, we're saved by faith alone. He was very clear on that, but he says, but the faith that saves is never alone. You see, the nature of true faith, if it's really faith, it truly trusts God, and it truly gives ourselves to what we say we believe. And so we're going to see this is not a work salvation. It's not mustering up the energy to earn my way, but it's saying when we truly believe in Jesus, when we put our faith in Jesus, we rest all our hope and our life in him, not perfectly and not at all times, but progressively growing to be more and more like Jesus and trusting in his promises that they're superior to everything else in the world. So that's a big setup to Romans, or I'm sorry, for Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 and 13. Let's read it again. It says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So he speaks to, he says, brothers. And so if you hear this being written and saying brothers or brothers and sisters, you naturally know that he's talking to the church body. Now, interestingly enough, earlier in this same chapter, back in chapter 3, verse 1, he referred to them as holy brothers, and he changes it here to just brothers. And some people think he's pointing out just ethnic, like these are Jewish people, you're my brothers, but I'm not saying that you're truly, your faith is in Jesus. You're not holy brothers here. I'm not sure if that's reading too much into it or not, but I do know throughout the epistles and throughout the letters that Paul wrote that Oftentimes, when he wrote to the church, he was assuming that there were some who professed faith but weren't really believers. There were some who said and were part of the community, but eventually showed they weren't really believers because they abandoned the community. And John speaks of that too in 1 John chapter 1, where he says, they went out from us, but they weren't, from, weren't with us. Because if they were truly with us, they would not abandon the church, and they would not abandon the teach, teachers, teaching of Jesus. And so these Jewish people may have thought because they were leaving the church and they were falling back into Judaism that they were like, hey, this is the same God. I mean, it's still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we're not abandoning God. We're just abandoning the Jesus community and going back to what we're more comfortable with. But look what he says in, in the verse. He, he calls this an evil, unbelieving heart. So he says, if you reject Jesus, it's evil. So he's saying to, to reject Jesus is to literally depart from God. You can't fall back into this past revelation that was given through the prophets that doesn't include Jesus. It's not faith in God. It's not God's revelation that you're responding to. And so he says, take care, brothers, lest there be in, in, in any of you this evil, unbelieving heart. And I, I think it's interesting, and even though it's not, I'm not going to fully break this out today, I want to help us understand Hebrews here really quick because a lot of people are concerned when they read Hebrews because it looks like at times there's verses that make you think like you could lose your salvation. And most of you have been taught once saved, always saved, or the perseverance of the saints. And you're like, I don't understand losing my salvation. I don't understand how that could be. It seems like what, that's what the author is saying. But I want you to look at this for a second, verses 12 and 13, and then we're going to look at verse 14 as well. Look what it says in verse 14. Put verse 14 up on the screen so we can see that. He says, these people, for he says in verse 14, he, the writer writes, for we have, have, past tense, have come to share in Christ. Look what he says. What's the next word? 
if, is it up on the screen? There it is. Look, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Let's read that again. Keep it up there. For we have come, past tense, to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So what he's meaning is if we do not hold fast to the end, then we've not come to share in Christ, plain and simple. So he's saying that proof of your salvation is the fact that you endured to the end, you persevered to the end. A true believer perseveres to the end. So look at the verse one more time. Let's read it all together. Keep it on the screen. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come, we've come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So this is the doctrine, what we call the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. It says that those who truly are in Christ persevere. You don't abandon Jesus. If you abandon Jesus, you were never redeemed in the first place. You were never a believer in the first place. And so through our, through our perseverance, through our staying as part of the body of Christ and being one in Christ and one with each other, those are proofs that the fact that we are truly in Christ. And so we're the children of God, as we sang, we're the bride of Christ. And so the bride of Christ desires to be what God has called us to be. And we persevere in that, even though life oftentimes makes that very, very difficult. So failure to persevere in faith is not a sign of losing your salvation, but of never having been a Christian in the first place. So it's written to these Jewish Christians, but the application is clear to us all. And here's the application is, we need one another in order to help us persevere to the end. To stay true to Jesus, to our faith, we need one another. Look what he says. He says, take care if you have an evil, unbelieving heart. Look at the progression here. An evil, unbelieving heart, and it leads to this falling away, and it ultimately leads to this hardening of our heart because of deceitfulness of sin. So there's this progression that takes place, and if you've been part of the church world for many years or even a few years, you've seen people who fall in this category. I think of my own, an example of a couple who we were really good friends with in our church in Dallas. And by all indications, this family was just a stellar family who supported the ministry, were very involved, were uh, very knowledgeable of Scripture. And then there was a second family, and this guy was actually a seminary student at Dallas Seminary. Our church supported him and helped him finish his degree. And he wanted to be a pastor. His home church back in Shreveport were big sponsors of him, and many people committed money to him so that he could finish seminary so he could be a pastor. Well, soon after we left Dallas, the, this family here, there was really good, fam, uh, really good friends with us who actually they came all the way here to Bainbridge to visit us when we first moved. The lady began to get into a close relationship with this guy who just graduated from seminary and began to work at the church there. And they struck up a good friendship. Well, it wasn't long before we heard through people of the church that there was more than just a good friendship going on. This is a pastor of the church, and the lady was actually running the children's ministry at the church after we'd left. 
And this guy, he began to justify what he was doing by saying, my marriage is broken anyway. We haven't had a marriage in years. And began to list out all the reasons why his marriage was, fa- was a failure. And he began to try to convince himself that it was okay because Lady here says her marriage is a failure, that it's okay for both of them to split up and get together. And what you see is there's a, a progression here. It's an evil, unbelieving heart. What happens? Questioning God. God, you're not in control because if you were in control, God, I wouldn't be married to this person. That was a mistake. And so I'm, I'm not trusting you, God, that you knew what you were doing when you put us together and not trusting that when I said I do forever and, you know, may death that we part, I, I, you know, I, I'm not trusting that I stood before you and made that commitment and I'm not trusting that you really want what's good for me and best for me, God, because I see over there something that seems like it's better for me. And there was this falling away then that happened. So this unbelieving heart, I'm not trusting God's promises. And so I begin to fall away. Of course, you can imagine pulling away from the church body, people going, don't do this, including myself, don't do this, stop this. But there was this falling away from the faith. And then there was just this hard heart. There was the, the people that I used to talk to and to have a relationship with just didn't want to hear from me. It was like talking to just a brick wall. What are you doing? And it got to the point where it, they just even quit trying to justify it because at that point they had just gone down that road so long that it was like, we're doing this and we don't care what anybody thinks. This is what's right. And this is what we want to do. And so somewhere along the line, if they were truly believers, the work of the Holy Spirit to conviction of the Holy Spirit was just ignored. And either they weren't believers in the first place or their consciences were so seared and they were so, became so hard and they erected this some system of self-atonement that essentially they said, I'm righteous, even though what God says they're doing is not righteous. And they said, this is good, even though God says that's not good, right? That's evil. They began to go down that road to feel good about what God said isn't good at all. And they ended up with a hardened heart. And what once bothered them no longer bothered them anymore. What about you? Have you gotten to the place where you're, some sins you're just hardened to? You just embrace these things and you're just living? You know, I honestly think in the church world, there's so many people who just, we don't know you. We don't truly know you. And, and I say that not to be condemning of you because the truth is sometimes it's difficult to know our own hearts. The heart is deceitful. Scripture says it's desperately wicked. Who can know it? And, and so we live these lives basically kind of showing people on Sunday and even in K-Group, hey, how you doing? Good. Let me share with you a little bit of Bible here for this 45 minutes. We're going to talk about it, and then I'm out. And then we just go and we live our lives, and we live here, many of us right here in our, our minds, by coming up with fantasies and ways of escaping our reality that God has put us in. And then other people, it's like you're flat out just living a lie. You've you got another life going on in lots of different areas of your life, and you're just embracing it. Look what the author says in verse 12. He says, take care. It, it literally, see to it is, is the point. Spurgeon said this, no good ever comes of carelessness. 
He who never examines himself is sure to be self-deceived. So are you deceiving yourself? Or are you examining yourself? You know, one of the beautiful things about doing communion and having communion on a regular basis is the fact that it's a time where God is instituted where we truly sit here quietly for a few minutes and we examine our hearts. And, and the warnings are clear in Scripture. Don't take this if you're not worthy. And it's a time to kind of just do a check of our spirit and seeing are we letting sin just run rampant in our life or are we pursuing holiness? Are we growing in holiness? Or are we comfortable with just being out of step with our profession of faith in some areas of our life? And so he says, take care. And then the author points us to the grace that's available through the body of Christ. And this is the primary way that he points to in order to take care. Verse 13, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we protect our hearts from becoming evil, unbelieving, and hard by speaking truth to one another. Let me say that again. We protect our hearts. We guard our hearts from becoming evil, unbelieving, and hard by speaking truth to one another. Sin wrecks havoc on our lives, upon our minds. And the thing is, sin's always just like for the couple here, I, I, I walk through their story, it lies, it's deceitful, and ultimately it just hardens us. And the funny thing about sin is we have no problem whatsoever spotting sin in everybody else's life. We can see it a mile away. But for some reason, the sins in our own life, we just are blind to it. Paul Tripp says we're blind to our own blindness. And the blinding ability of sin is so powerful that he says we need daily intervention from the body of Christ. We don't just need intervention, we need daily intervention. So the author of Hebrews sees Christian fellowship, koinonia is the word where we get our K group, koinonia, more than just fellowship, meaning you're hanging out for a fellowship lunch after church, you're eating chicken together, and you're having some shallow chit-chat. Koinonia is about life on life. And the author of Hebrews says that it's a strong defense against sin and against apostasy. So we need one another if we're going to enter the rest. Think back to the Old Testament here, the parallel that we see throughout this book. Remember one of my favorite stories of your kids in here. I don't know about you, but this was one of my favorite stories growing up. It's when the spies went into the land of Canaan, the promised land. How many spies did they send in? Anybody remember? Kids, anybody throw out a number? Twelve, very good, twelve. Twelve spies went in, and they came back to give the report to Moses. And how many of the spies said, we can't trust God, we can't do this, this is too big? How many said that? Ten. Ten, Ten said that. And there were two that said, God's given us this land. Let's go for it. Their name was Joshua and Caleb. And Joshua and Caleb said, look, it looks impossible. It looks like beyond our ability, but God told us that's our land. And we're not trusting our own resources. We're trusting God because he promised us. And we're going to enter that rest. We're going to go there. 
Joshua and Caleb. Listen, Grace Church needs Joshua's and Caleb's. We do. We honestly do. Because life is hard and it's so tough and we get bogged down in the day-to-day stuff. And your employer, he's working you lots of extra overtime. And at home, there's, the kids are just going everywhere, involved in every sport. And there's so many things that, to juggle and keep going all the time. But we need some Joshua and Caleb's in this church to say, keep your eye upon God's promises. I'm going to speak God's promises to you. And in, in all the busyness that's going on, Remember that God is superior, that Jesus is superior to all the stuff that you're putting your focus and attention on in this world. And God has promised us rest. And I love the idea of rest because we need rest, don't we? We're striving. We're working. And oftentimes, even, our, even if we know better, our relationship with God so many times is based upon performance. And God loves me when I do right, and God not so loves me when I do wrong. No, the thing is, in Christ, you've been declared holy and righteous. You're a holy brother. You're a holy sister. And he's working all things for your good and his glory. And we have to believe that. We need Joshua's and Caleb's in those moments of discouragement to run to us and put their arm around us and say, man, how can I help you? How can I encourage you? How can I pray for you? What's going on in your life? God's promises are superior. So he says, exhort one another, not just occasionally or on Sundays when you see each other, but he says, exhort one another every day. So daily means that this encouragement should be habitual. And that's one thing that's great about K-groups, is that you're put into a situation with people where you can develop relationships where it's not just about showing up at the group and getting some encouragement. But the best tool, I mean, we live in times where the, the best tool right here can be, can be the worst thing ever, but it can be the best thing ever because you can shoot texts to people in your group and say, hey man, I'm praying for you today. What can I pray for you about? What are you discouraged about? What do you need encouragement for? How are things going? And we can use this by literally encouraging each other every day because we know the early church oftentimes they met every day of the week. We're not meeting every day of the week, but we can stay connected every day of the week. And he says, as long as it's called today. So he adds this urgency to it. Today doesn't last forever, does it? So as long as it's called today. So he's encouraging us to take action, not just sit back and let's discuss or think about or debate the words that we talked about today. All right, so let me think about that for a second. All right, uh, so we should, we should encourage each other. That's, that's a good word from Scripture. Yeah, let me, let me continue to ponder that for a few weeks, and then maybe I'll consider whether I do it. And that's not what the option we're given here. It's take action. Begin now. As long as it's called today, God's promises are trustworthy. Let's warn each other about sin. Let's encourage each other because it's tough, and we need each other. Why? So none of you, verse 13, so none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Deceitfulness means tricky, and sin is definitely tricky. And oftentimes, sin is basically a perversion of the good things that God has given us. God says, here's a gift, and here's how you use this gift. Use it the way that I'm telling you to use it. And what do we do? We take the good gift of God, and we pervert it for our own selfishness, our own evil, 
And then we take what God gave as good and we turn it into something that just wrecks havoc in our life. So sin is perversion. And it usually involves replacing God as the source of life, the source of satisfaction. And so while we are easy to, in our minds, we come up with a list of things that we do or don't do, let's step back foundationally here. Basically, listen, sin is saying, God, I don't need you. I got this handled on my own. I don't trust that you're the source of life and satisfaction. I've got to look and find that elsewhere. And I may make myself feel better because I'm going to grab a little bit of God and add him to this area of my life where I'm living. But for the most part, God is just an add-on afterthought. It's about you, and it's about what you want. It's about your life. That's how sin's tricky. It's a perversion of God's good gifts, and it's deceitful. And it makes us hard in the end when we run that way. And it makes our hearts where we don't recognize them at some point. Some of you are there. You just don't recognize yourself anymore because of sin running rampant in your life and just living for yourself versus living for God. And this idea of the perseverance of the saints, he says, if you're really mine, you're, going, you're not going to keep going this way. You hear the conviction of the Spirit. You hear a message. Instead of like, um, how many light bulbs are out today? What's going on up here on the ceiling? I'm doing all I can to avoid the truth here, right? Where's my mind at? Where are we going for lunch? All right, what's going on today, later today? You see, that's Satan trying to distract you from the truth that we're talking about today. Because he would, he would love you to walk out of this room and, and remain unchanged. To keep going the direction you're going, and one day, sorry to be so blunt, you'll stand before him and he'll say, depart, I never knew you. You're like, I, I prayed a prayer. I don't know you. If you know Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives in you, and he's tugging at you, pulling at you. Come back to here, to me. And we do that again and again. We don't lose our salvation, gain our salvation, lose our salvation, gain our salvation. That's not scriptural. But what he's saying is that those who are truly in Christ, you feel that tug of the Holy Spirit. You confess your sin. And you want to live in harmony with the spirit that's in you, that's working for God's will. Not what I want, but what you want. And God uses his word, and he uses community. And please, so many times we think that this is where sanctification happens. But he doesn't say, go listen to a sermon. He says, exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today. We need one another in the body of Christ. We need people who speak truth to us in the body of Christ. We need K-groups who are beyond this shallow conversation, but we're truly, truly delving in each other's lives because we need each other. Otherwise, we just go adrift. I've used this quote many times from Pastor Tim Keller, but it really is true. Everyone says they want community and friendship, but mention accountability and commitment to people, and they run the other way. We want friends on our terms. We want community on our terms. But koinonia, fellowship, biblical fellowship, 
requires accountability, and it requires commitment to other people. Oftentimes not on our terms. And so our head, growth in sanctification, becoming more like Jesus, is a community project. You need one another. And here's the heart. Allow God to humble you through his word. Because if you're not humble, you won't be real in community. You'll keep people at arm's length. You'll be surfacey. Occasionally, you may let them in enough just to appease them, to make them think that you're going there. But in reality, you're saying, do not enter. This is not your area. But humility helps us to see how broken we are and how prone, listen, how prone we are to wander away from God and how quickly our lives can just change on a dime and all of a sudden we're just doing things and making decisions that are so anti-Jesus. Ask for a humble heart and then be intentional in your relationships this year. Look, this is one sermon then we move on, we'll do one more on regroup, and then we'll go back in the, in the Gospel of John. And it's going to be easy just to kind of file this away as something good to do, maybe one day, or maybe good intentions. But you have to have a plan to be intentional. I encourage you to look in your K group this year and invite people within your group, some guys, guys, ladies, some ladies, to hang out together, to be part of a fight club to get together and have those deeper conversations. And don't keep it shallow, because on Wednesday night, you're not going to be able to go under the hood, in the heart, like you should. But we can pull these friendships out of our group, and we can begin to be very intentional about our life and where we're struggling and where we're pursuing and how we're doing. You know, some of the questions that I give to the fight clubs that we can ask each other and I would tell you, those guys who are in Fight Club with me, we know how easy it is just to ignore these questions or just forget to do them. And I'm rededicating myself to you guys or who I'm with that we're going to be more intentional about these questions. Are you, def- are you feeling defeated in any area of your life? That's a great question to ask because it begins to open up the heart and show. What do you find yourself daydreaming or fantasizing about? That shows where your heart's at. Where do your thoughts drift when you enter social situations? What lies do you find yourself believing that undermine the truth of the gospel? Where have you made far too much of yourself and far too little of God? These questions that point us to the gospel, that lift up Jesus, and I say this a lot in our fight club, I said for every one look at sin, we need to take 10 looks at Jesus. We need to look at Jesus way more often then we just look at our sins. Don't let your time with other people just turn into just exposing sin. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He's the one that gives us victory. He's the one that allows us to grow in holiness. And he's the one that it's about ultimately.